0: understood as and described in the tradition as being the elephant's footprint. It's kind of a interesting or perhaps bizarre image, but what it actually refers to is the fact that the elephant's footprint is the footprint which encompasses all other footprints. And the truth of change encompasses all other truths in this world. All that arises is subject to passing. This fact this truth this reality the truth of change dominates the world of things the world of that which arises and comes into being all of it is dominated by the fact that having come into being it will cease at some time and so in a certain way we can understand our human existence as though we're living in borrowed or rental accommodation A borrowed home, for some time. I had the interesting experience with my uh, wife Catherine of, after spending a couple of years living in America at a retreat centre similar to Gaia House, we came back and on two occasions within the first two years we were invited to stay by some um, kind people in their house. Um, for some time with the intention that it was open-ended an ongoing, a permanent perhaps arrangement it seemed and after uh, a period of a year or a little more on both occasions we were just as kindly asked to leave and it was kind of ironic and particularly the second time it happened it was like, hmm, this is interesting on both occasions we'd been given a rather favourable circumstances in light of our sort of uh, relative uh, sort of pennilessness I guess as uh, young uh, dharma servants as we both were then working and sort of supporting and serving the dharma and receiving pretty minimal income and so there was a sense of a real gratefulness at receiving these offers from these people that had served us very well and then something very interesting at the point where for reasons that were sure had nothing to do with us um, they said time to go now And what does that mean or how does that shed light on our circumstance? Something like this. To see that this body and mind is a temporary phenomena. It's not a permanent home. And you know, we have a rather unpredictable landlord. We really don't know at what point we're going to get notice. We might not even get notice. We might just get turfed out. But we do know that it's rental accommodation because we're not here forever. To reflect upon this is something that brings us in touch with what the spiritual journey is concerned with. And the Buddha invited and encouraged practitioners to take time to reflect in this way, to consider that all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, all that is dear to me, one day I will be parted from this to really let this in, to know that this is so. To acknowledge that we will die, that others will die who we are fond of, who we care for. And in acknowledging this, of course, it's not inappropriate that we might feel some sadness or some grief. That's natural when we have loved and cared for others or for our own life, that there would be some tenderness and felt sorrow at that ending. But not to kid ourselves that it nonetheless, and despite this, it won't come to that. Our sorrow or desire for it to be otherwise will not prevent it happening. And the question to ask is, do we really recognize this? Do we acknowledge this truly? Because it's so easy, it seems, to just sort of skip over that. Unless it's happening immediately, unless some evidence is being presented to us that's really rather direct and in our face. Otherwise we tend to want to shy away. But the encounter with this reality was exactly that that propelled the Buddha in his own search, in his seeking, in his spiritual journey encountering someone who is sick, someone who is aged, someone who is dead, realizing that he too would encounter these conditions, that his body would meet aging, sickness and death, just as our bodies will. He said to himself, Why being subject to sickness, aging and death? Should I spend my time chasing after other things which are also subject to sickness, aging and death? does it not make more sense to seek for that which is not subject to sickness, ageing, and death? And so this is what set him off on his journey. And if we look, we see that this truth is all around us. Change happens everywhere. Nobody, if you ask them whether a, a young child or an adult would suggest that things don't change, that they're always the same. If anyone was asked the question directly, we'd know, of course, the weather changes, the, um, the way we feel changes, our body changes, the world changes, the news changes. We're all quite aware of that. But do we act in accordance with that knowledge? Do we really live our life? understanding that this is so. Because understanding, insight, recognising what is true, only transforms (coughs) our life if we live according to it. And it seems so easy for us to not do that. And I remember very clearly um, some years ago an experience that happened to me on a Saturday morning. It was really hot summer's day. We'd had several warm days in a row, which is as you know, being most of you living in England, I assume, a rather rare event in this country. And after a few days in a row of hot sunny weather, I was packing my bags to come and spend a week here teaching a retreat. And I was going to be staying for that week. And I was really concerned. I noticed I was sort of a bit anxious and worried because (coughs) I realized I didn't have any really nice lightweight shirts that I could wear that were tidy enough to wear for teaching a retreat. They were mostly kind of rough things because... It wasn't often I got to use them, and certainly not when I was working very often. I was thinking, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna be too hot. I've only got these warm winterweight shirts, which is what I normally wear in summer in England. Um, and you know, and I was really I spent quite some time and in the end, you know, I took what I could find, and then oh, I guess that t shirt will do, you know, it's not too bad. Um, and arrived at Gaia House and settled in and the next day it was wet. And cold. And I went back into my bag looking for my clothes, very aware that I'd been thinking yesterday how I didn't have enough clothes for this hot weather. And I realised with some degree of horror, actually, as a Dharma teacher who talks about change all the time, that I'd been operating out of this fixed mind that believed that the hot weather of the last two or three days was going to continue all week. When did that happen in England? I wasn't here for it. Up until but In that, I'd forgotten, and not only that, I'd forgotten to bring a jumper or a sweater. I didn't have a warm thing in there. And it was really like, huh? How did I do that? But we do that all the time, don't we? If we actually look at our life, we'll see so often we make our choices or we're reacting to a situation based on the unquestioned assumption that the way it is now is how it will continue. (coughs) And this informs so much of our life, and yet informs it in a way that leads to struggle and suffering. This misperception the Buddha spoke of is something we need to really address, the misperception that that which is impermanent and changing is somehow permanent or fixed and continuous. This we need to look at and examine. We can see how we're sitting in meditation sometimes and we feel calm. And, you know, it's been two or three breaths now and the mind hasn't wandered. Peace has descended. We're feeling enveloped with the potential for spiritual bliss. And, and immediately the mind starts thinking, I've got it. Yeah, this is it. And that's what they were talking about. All oh, right. Yeah. Wow, this retreat's a bit short, really. Maybe I'll come back for a couple of weeks soon, or maybe a month. Or actually, I could go to Asia and shave my head and ordain. I'll be a nun or a monk, and we just have this image of us sitting in, you know, enlightened bliss on a cushion on a mountain somewhere in Asia. And then, in that moment, of course, we realise that we're a long way from our breath or being present. We've been lost in a fantasy, and we'd projected this. Experience of a few moments into our whole life and started making plans for it. You know, maybe we'd already gone through the speech where we, you know, resigned our job, said goodbye to our partner. You know, I'm off to live the holy life. And we didn't notice. But having noticed all of that, without oh my gosh, look, I'm just totally full of my own ego. I'm so deluded. I couldn't even stay present for more than three breaths. It's hopeless. I can't do it. It's no good. You know. You know. It's, I might as well give up, I'm, I can't, I, I'm going home. You know, and we, start, we want to pack our bag, we start thinking, okay, maybe I'll slip out after the sitting, no one will notice. And again, we've projected that experience as though somehow that moment of confusion or frustration is going to continue for the rest of the retreat or our whole life. You know, never want to meditate again. And it's like we project this moment into the future we do it again and again and again. And when we do that and we leave where we are, we lose contact with what enables us to live, skillfully, which is that conscious knowing of where we are. And we live our life in this way. We struggle with things that are difficult. Not because they're difficult. They're <coughs> difficult, sure, but they're already here. The thought that says, I can't be with this. Well, actually, it's already here, and you are being with it. You're not liking it. Sure, that's okay. You don't have to like it. But you're already here. It's already here. It's happening. What we can't be with is the thought that it will continue forever. That's what we think we can't deal with. That's why we struggle with it. And, of course, you can't deal with what it's going to feel like in 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days from now because it hasn't happened. It's not real. You can't deal with an unreality. So in that way it's right. You can't deal with that. But you don't have to because it's not there. And yet so easily we're struggling with this fabrication because we haven't remembered that this experience, perhaps challenging, perhaps difficult, and sometimes experiences really are difficult. It's not to try and somehow sort of make that as though it's not true. Sometimes things are really difficult. But they come into being. And having come into being, they pass away. It's the nature of experience to do this. And our very life, we can live as though it's forever. This precious, miraculous opportunity. We can treat it as if it's going to go on and on, but it won't. They won't go on forever. The philosopher Gaillard once said, If we know but act, but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. And in this context what that means is, although we know things change, we don't really know. Something in us doesn't quite believe it. Something in us is invested in the idea of things continuing. Because we're invested in the idea of me continuing. Because me can't conceive of life going on without me. How could it? I've got to be there to to be at the centre of it all, making it happen, don't I? And so how does this happen, that we get caught up in this? Believing in something that we know isn't true. I mean, it would be more understandable if we didn't know it, but we actually know it. And yet somehow we manage to forget it, to not know it fully and truly, so we live it. The process of insight practice, whether through insight meditation or just simply the exploration of our life as a spiritual journey, inquiring into life, it's the process of actually examining our perceptions in order to see where they may be incorrect and to correct them so that we're actually seeing what is true and therefore living, able to live in accord with what is true. It is the movement from blindness and confusion to wisdom and understanding. This is the journey of insight meditation and of spiritual practice. And so. Misperception, how does it arise? How do we miss what's in front of our very faces? It's because we're not looking where we are. We're not looking carefully at what's going on. We tend to be fixated on other things. And An image once occurred to me that I find really helpful for understanding or or explaining what this is like. So you could just imagine this for a moment while I'm describing the scenario. You're in a car you're driving along. It's a long straight road. You're looking right out the windscreen in front of you and ahead of you where you're going to arrive at some distant in some future time, maybe not so far away, but down at the end of the horizon if you're looking out the window, it's a straight road there's not much changing. It looks pretty fixed. It looks pretty much like the same thing is out there as you're driving along. And if you turn around and look out the back window And it's probably not a good idea to do this if you're actually driving. Um, But if you're a passenger or if you're driving, use the rear vision mirror. Just imagine you're looking out the rear mirror on a long straight road. What do you see? The picture out the back of the window is pretty much the same. It doesn't change. It's pretty much what it was this moment and the next moment and the next moment. But then if you look out the side window at the side of the road, immediately beside you as you're driving along, what do you see? Again, if you're driving, don't do this for too long. But if you look at out the side window, it's flickering past so fast you can barely see it. It's a blur. You can hardly focus on a single thing as you're driving along. And this is like the way we live our lives. We're fixated on the future, which, because it's something of a fabrication in our mind, it hasn't happened yet. We're fixated on the future, and so we fix it as a solidity. Or we're. we're referring back and fixating on the past. It's not actually the past, it's a collection of images and memories from the past that we've assembled into a picture that we call what happened. And we're looking at it and it doesn't change either because we've just made this picture. And that's it. It's not moving or changing like it was when it happened. And if you think it's not just a picture, sit down with three people who were at the same place at the same time when something happened and ask them what happened. And you hear three different stories. They each have a different picture. So seeing that we're referring to these pictures of past and future, because we invest so much in them, it's like the past seems to have the clues from which we're going to predict and either protect or promote what we want in the future. It's so important, it seems to us. But so long as we're fixated in this way, things appear solid and fixed. Fixation leads to things seeming fixed. When we actually bring our attention to the present moment, as we're invited to do in the meditation, in the yoga, and simply being here as we go through these days, what we notice is that (coughs) things are changing. We notice the breath. In-breath changes to out-breath. We perhaps notice that no two breaths are the same. Sensations move in our body. Sometimes like this, sometimes like that. Sometimes the movement feels like this. Easy, soft, light. Sometimes a movement feels tight or jerky or ragged. We see that emotions arise. And they actually, they may seem like they're kind of solid for a while, but actually if we stay around, we notice that they begin to change or they turn into something else or they simply fade away. Or they become stronger. But they're changing. They're moving, they're morphing. And if we look carefully enough, we'll see they're doing it constantly. Everything is changing constantly. Being attentive to the present reveals the truth of change. Reveals the way things are, things that come, go. This we can see if we look at it carefully. And what we also see is that our own experience, what we call me, this body, this mind, is changing. Sometimes it feels comfortable. We arrive, we sit down. Someone reported in the group, I think yesterday maybe. Strange, isn't it? We sit down, it's perfectly comfortable. A little while later, we haven't changed the posture. It's supposed to be. It seemed like a comfortable posture. A little while later, it's not comfortable anymore. What's happened? Sometimes we keep sitting there. And a while later, it's comfortable again. It's the same posture. But it's not. It's changing it's changing in all sorts of subtle ways although from the outside it looks like nothing's happened but lots has happened we see this mind i mean how many thoughts have you had just today were you happy were you sad were you frustrated annoyed irritated ex- excited delighted inspired miserable bored you know and that was just the first sitting. <laughs> See how many things come through us. It's like life pours through and it keeps changing. Different feelings, different thoughts, different experiences, sounds, silence. All these different things. And in them there's nothing fixed, there's nothing solid we can take hold of. Even the idea, this is me that feels kind of solid within it. Sometimes it doesn't feel like me at all. It feels like somebody else going on in here. You know, We meet something that's unusual or unfamiliar. And we think, oh, is that me? God, I didn't know me was like that sometimes. I thought I was mostly quite friendly. And here I am feeling really angry with someone who's actually done really nothing at all. Or maybe I think I'm kind of distant and sort of not very sort of warm towards people and I notice myself just feeling touched by someone walking silently on the grass and feeling, oh, how, how lovely that is. Seeing ourselves show up in ways we don't recognise. We perhaps start to question a little bit the sense we have of something solid that we are. Because all these things that we call ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations of our body, its appearance, all of this, when we look at it carefully, it's changing, it's flowing, it's fluid. And where have they gone? Where is the body that you used to have when you were five years old? It's not here, is it, you know, or ten or twenty, and there's probably a time when we thought we'd quite like to keep that particular body, you know, when it was healthy and fit and young and strong. But we can't. Where's it gone? Or where is the body that you're going to have in 10 or 20 years from now? Because you know, not much of the, um, the matter that makes this one up is still going to be here. A few neur- neurons, hopefully. But most of the rest of it will be, will be gone in 10 years or less. It's all going to be different. Yet somehow we, we have an idea that it's me in here. It's fixed. There's something solid here. Something permanent. It's quite hard to open up to the truth of change because that vibration of impermanence unsettles us. It speaks to us of an insecurity that we really don't like, that really isn't easy for us. There's a way in which we pull back from it Because we want something that we can hold on to. And so much of our lives can be an attempt to create security, to create something fixed and solid that we can rely on. Whether it be externally (coughs) in the material world, houses and jobs and relationships, material possessions, all of which have their place and their value, and there's nothing wrong with having them. But not to be fooled into thinking that these are forever, because they're not. And sometimes we, we look more within to try and find some place within ourselves, some fixed experience, some state of mind, maybe some meditative experience, or yogic bliss, that will be forever, that we can just live here. But whatever we might encounter although, of course, many useful and wonderful things we can discover, explore, cultivate, there isn't a particular something that's going to be there forever. And and this urge to find security, because it doesn't quite work, it leads to a controlling, a rigidity, a solidification, where we actually lose, we compromise the fluidity of our life. We inhibit, or we we attempt, we don't actually succeed, but we attempt to block the movement of life. Because that movement is scary. Because that movement speaks to us, reveals to us, shows us again and again that things are fluid. That it's not in our control. And when we invest in external circumstances or internal conditions to somehow <coughs> give us security. It's like we're children building sandcastles on the beach. And you know what's interesting about sandcastles is mostly you have to build them in the wet sand. Because dry sand you can't make much out of, can you? You can't make wet, dry sand into a sandcastle. It just falls in a heap. But wet sand, well that's where the tide comes in. That's how it got wet. Inevitably, the tide comes in again. And the castles get washed away. It's the nature of things that get built in that way. And of course, some children will just laugh and you know, enjoy the tide coming in and maybe go and you know, kick the top of the castle over for fun. And others will be upset and tearful and, you know, how can I stop the sea? How can I stop the waves coming in and destroying my castle? It's not possible. So, of course, we can enjoy making castles. But we understand, if we understand that someday the tide will come in, and that which we have built up will be scattered, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. Helen Keller, who was both blind and deaf, and yet lived a remarkable life, she once wrote, she said, Security is mostly a superstition, it does not exist in nature and nor do the children of mankind as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. a remarkable invitation to how we might live our lives. And if we are willing to embrace the way things are, what we'll see and what is actually very apparent is that impermanence isn't all bad news. The fact that things change is actually remarkably beneficial. There's a lot we receive from that reality that serves and supports and nourishes us. I mean, for starters, this planet would be a little bit crowded if everyone that and everything that ever lived was still here. It really would get a little crowded. This room would be a little crowded. If things didn't change, the air would be the same as what we started with, and that would be a problem. Even just little things like that, we realize I actually changed. It's got its... It's got its plus side, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> we particularly tend to notice the plus side of change when things are difficult. When we think, you know, the air needs changing in the room, or the air needs changing in my consciousness. Sometimes we think, or in my life. And then we're kind of wanting things to hurry up, you know. Come on, if you could change quickly, please. This isn't wisdom. This is actually more aversion and avoidance, to see that change happens in its own time. But the fact that it happens is what allows life to be there. Life couldn't be if there wasn't movement, if there wasn't change. It wouldn't be possible for it. So sometimes when things are difficult, giving attention to the fact that they change allows us not to try and make it change, but knowing that things change allows us to be with it, to let it be as it is, and trust that it will change in its own time, in its own way. Impermanence and change is also the basis of what evokes a sense of beauty in us. You could imagine if you see, you know, if you've uh, perhaps recently had the good fortune to be outdoors on a Evening when the sun is setting through the clouds and the beautiful colours shining on the horizon. And there can be that sense of, oh, how lovely. And we're entranced by the beauty of the image. But imagine if it just stayed the same. In our case, there's beautiful yellows and purples and oranges, maybe, and gold or red. And it's like, oh, how lovely. (coughs) If it stayed the same, maybe two minutes we could manage looking at it. And we go, oh, okay, yeah, well, i have a cup of tea. (laughs) <laughs> it changes and we stay entranced with it and it fades and disappears into the grey and the dark of evening the beauty that we sense in it is because it's temporary and also brief, all too brief or you go into a restaurant and sometimes it's remarkable what they've done with plastic made it look like flowers and you look at it and you really can't tell that it isn't a flower by looking at it unless you get really close Someone's even put some perfume on it to fool you a bit further. And yet there's something about it that tells you this thing isn't quite alive. And what is it? It's because it's perfect. It's because it doesn't have any dead bits, or dying bits, or drying out and fading away bits. And it doesn't touch us the way a live flower does. It looks pretty enough, but it doesn't touch us. It's like something of beauty, something of aliveness, is inextricably linked with That process of change, of impermanence, that movement of life, that moves through death. These two go together. And because of this also we we sense the preciousness of things. Things that are not forever, are precious to us. If they were forever, how could we take it as precious? How could we be bothered to feel there was meaning in our life if it was forever? We'd be like, well, I can do anything I want to do. I can do it later. It wouldn't, wouldn't touch us. It wouldn't wouldn't feel the, the keenness of our life. Something about impermanence speaks to us of that which we treasure, reveals it to us. There's a small... Uh, I guess, sign or memorial, placard at a monastery, a Buddhist monastery in uh, in Sussex, Chichester, where I enjoyed to visit on occasion and spent some time over the years. And it's got a little, I think maybe it's a phrase or a haiku. It says The cherry trees blossom for just a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. Then underneath it, it's got a name. It said Little Sammy and a date, just a single day. In the sense of the the preciousness of a day that's just, of a life that lasted just one day. That it's not less precious in that, perhaps even more precious than one that lasted more days. Something incredibly touching, incredibly poignant about that. That understanding of where true preciousness arises from. So what do we do with this teaching? What is it suggesting to us, this teaching, this truth, this reality? Well, one of the things that's quite apparent is if we recognize we're living in borrowed accommodation, if this is a rental home that we're in, we relate to it really differently than if we think it's forever, if we think it's permanent. I had the very interesting experience in the second uh, occasion that I of the two that I referred to at the beginning of the talk where my wife Catherine and I were invited to live with some other people. Um they'd just bought this new house. It was it wasn't new, they'd bought a house and it was a lovely house. It was really big and spacious, nice grounds and we were moving in together. We were gonna to live together in a sort of a community way. It was the was the vision. And it was really interesting to me how we moved in together and we looked around and thought, Oh wow, what a nice house. I'll be happy to live here. And they looked around and said, hmm, let's move that wall over there. We'll put a fireplace in here. We'll change those windows. And it was very much like how we relate to ourself in terms of keeping wanting to fix and imp- improve and perfect. Like when we think of ourselves as here forever, or things as around forever, we tend to fixate somewhat on making them better than they are. And we actually don't so quickly... Recognize that actually we can live in it just like this. It's okay this way. There's something about that. We don't need to fix something. You know, if someone, we borrow something from somebody else, we don't decide to repaint it. Or, you know, we, we I did know someone once who so went to stay in someone's house for six weeks and changed the curtains because she couldn't stand them. It's kind of like, wow, that's interesting. But that, that's pretty unusual. <laughs> person wasn't that happy when they came back. (laughs) To see that the body we have, the state of mind we experience, the conditions that are around us, these thoughts even, this very life, are something borrowed, something offered to us, not forever but for now. We could perhaps receive it with gratitude, with appreciation, even though it's not perfect. It's okay. It's an offering. And we can receive it like that. We don't need to do something else with it. To make it different than it is. But what we do need to do is understand it, to look into it deeply. Because the wisdom of change the Wisdom of Impermanence speaks to us with a very clear voice. It says, don't hold on. And spiritual teachings echo this injunction saying, let go, don't hold on to life, don't hold on to things, to experiences, to situations, because you can't, because they're moving. And if you try and hold on to them, you squeeze the very life out of them. And." we end up, as a result, feeling the life squeezed out of ourselves. Learning to let things go, even the sweet and the delightful. William Blake understood this when he wrote, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. To he who kisses the joy as it flies, lives on in eternity's sunrise. So, beautifully capturing the spirit of this whole teaching. If we try and bind ourselves to something that delights us. In Blake's words, we destroy the winged life. We lose the lightness, the ability of things to move, to fly. But if we can just kiss them, if we can just touch them, it doesn't mean we don't contact them. We're not really there to meet those moments of sweetness, or beauty, or delight. Not that we shy away from them at all, but no, to really meet them. But just touching them like that, not trying to hold on to them or keep them. This, in Blake's words, is the, the key to what he calls eternity sunrise, the dawn of that which is beyond the bounds of time. And likewise with the difficult, challenging, to not resist would to fight against it, because in fact it's our resistance that makes it get stuck. It's our unwillingness to actually experience and let it <coughs> pass through us that effectively imprisons us within it, or it within us. Being willing to open to the difficult is to allow it to express its nature. Which is the same as the nature of all things, that it comes, stays for some time, and passes on. All things are like this. And with the emotional life, where we can often feel so deeply and struggle so greatly with the things that are not easy, with the burdens and the challenges, with that which is not easy to bear. To understand this teaching is so helpful. To understand that all things have their place and their time. To see whatever appears in our hearts as something changing is to radically transform our relationship to life to not identify so strongly with any particular feeling or mood or emotion because when we do so, it conditions us profoundly and we struggle. We struggle so much. Khalil Gibran and the Prophet said, and I find it very, very beautiful, he said, If you could keep your mind in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, Then your sorrow would not seem less miraculous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. It's a beautiful image, the seasons of the heart. To know that sometimes it's summer, and how lovely we're filled with delight or joy, blooming and the richness of fruition, of good things. And yet summer doesn't last forever, much as we might like it to. It eventually starts to fade into autumn. And eventually it dies back into winter. And sometimes it's winter and it's hard or it's harsh or it's cold or it's arid. We don't feel like we're in contact with something sweet or delightful. can feel places of disconnection or fear. It can be so hard to bear. And yet to understand that winter has its place in the cycle of life. And it's precisely because of that dying back of what was that we experience as the harshness of winter that something new can bloom forth, that spring can come into being. It needs that cycle for that to happen. And so, although we might find it difficult we can trust in the process, whereby the dying back of winter is understood to be the the (coughs) ground from which spring comes into life, from which new possibilities emerge, new directions, fresh unfoldments. All this happens naturally and unstoppably. We wouldn't conceive that summer would really last forever. If it did, we'd get a little annoyed, probably, eventually. It would get hot and sticky and grass would all dry up and we'd rationale our water even more than they do. It wouldn't actually be so great. So the idea, the fantasy of somehow eternal pleasant conditions or uplifted mind states isn't the reality. It's the cycle. When we see the cycle, we see there's a lawfulness. There's an appropriateness in what's happening. And as we see that, we actually can let go of our struggle with it. We don't need to be so fixated on preventing one experience or attaining a different one or keeping a particular one. That becomes less important. And we can start to sense, if we, if we allow things to move, if we trust in the way things are, in their natural dynamic fluidity and their movement, when we actually allow ourselves to rest in that condition, we start to sense that there's something else going on as well. That although this is the truth of things that come and go, of that which is born, and therefore must die. That this is not all that there is to be discovered in life. But it's hard for us to see this when we're fixated on trying to get one thing or prevent another, avoid another. So we talk about letting go. Let things go. When they leave, let them leave. Let things come. When they come, let them come. Let them be while they're here and see them pass on. And in that condition we can be touched by something. Many years ago I was practicing in a monastery in Asia and uh, very much enjoying being there practicing as much as you've been practicing here sitting and walking and some yoga and uh, As I was doing my walking meditation in the afternoon, I was particularly enjoying the little puppies in the monastery. And in Asia, the monasteries are kind of like a sanctuary for all beings. Um, And for a lot of creatures, it's pretty tough out there. Not just the human ones, but also the other creatures. And often you find quite a few sort of dogs and cats and chickens and occasional pigs and donkeys sort of finding refuge in the monasteries. And so these little puppies would be running around and they were very playful and as you were walking along slowly they'd come running up and bump into your foot to see if you were really mindful and in balance and if you weren't you'd sort of almost fall over or if you'd put your food down while you were eating your lunch they'd come and help you clean up, you know, even if you weren't quite finished yet. <coughs> and I just found myself delighting in these little puppies and reflecting on how much I'd enjoyed them. And I'd been there the year before doing much the same thing and uh, suddenly it struck me that I was relating and believing that these puppies were the same ones I'd seen last year. Because they were just the same. They were exactly the same as the puppies had been. And it was like this moment of, huh? Huh? No. Obviously. Obviously, they're not the same puppies. Those puppies have grown up, become adult, adult creatures. And I was just pondering this. Apart from, again, being like, okay, so that fooled me, you know but just pondering how does this happen and there was this sense for me that arose in that experience in which it was really really clear that puppies come and go but puppy nature is unchanging the nature of what animates those beings the life that sparkles in their eyes and dances through their games hasn't changed at all it's Exactly and essentially the same. Although the beings are completely different. And many of those that were there last year would not have lived to become adults. And so there's something that we can notice when we actually are just simply present. When we're not trying to make anything out of our experience or get anything from it. But we're just interested to enter it wholeheartedly. When we let it go, when we let it be, and yet we're really there, there's a vibration, we could say. It's not really a vibration. But there's a a resonance that speaks to us, that we can recognize. Because although it's completely new and fresh, it's also familiar. Although it's never happened before, we recognize it. And it speaks to us of something that isn't born and doesn't die. It speaks to us of the nature of life itself, through which all that moves, all that is born, all that is die, through which it passes, in which it's held, through which it's revealed. And it's not apart from all of that and nor is it defined by it. To understand this, to realise this, is to be at peace with the world of things. To be at peace with a changing world.